Thanks, Ian, very much. Um, I'm a bit of a dilemma. In one sense, the picture you paint here would be welcomed by about 99% of Christians in the Sydney district. But the ideas that you present, the sort of dismantling of the creation fall, mm. uh, would not be. And uh, in a sense, I feel like you've passed us a, uh, I'm the 5-8 next Saturday night and the uh, all-back packers uh, right. <laughs> powering down on me and uh, yeah. I would not dare stick my head up and, uh, right. and pursue that. Perhaps you might want to comment, not just now, but maybe throughout the uh, weekends. Well, on the All Blacks, I'm not going to comment. <laughs> I'm going to the game, though, next weekend, which is great. Um, yes, well, let me, just, let me just say a bit about that. <clears throat> I imagine that most people in the room today are Protestants. I'm just guessing. <clears throat> As Protestants, what we say is that we depend on Scripture alone as the final arbiter of what we should believe and how we should live. And I think we mean it. I don't think we're lying. And yet, it is rather astonishing how difficult we actually find it to bring settled traditional belief into that spotlight, such that even when somebody says, you know, I don't think Scripture says that, there's still a kind of nervous reaction, right? So that, that's weird, if I may say. I'm not trying to be impolite. I just think that's a bit strange, right? There's a, a mismatch there. So from my point of view, I haven't dismantled the creation fall eschaton paradigm. I'm suggesting some adjustments to it so that it can do better justice to what the Bible appears actually to say. I may be wrong in that, for all I know. I don't believe I am. I believe I'm right. And the question before the rest of you is whether that is so. Right? Uh, nothing I have said departs from the creedal statements of the church, actually, interestingly enough. Nothing I have said is in contradiction to the Nicene Creed. Nothing I have said, I believe, is in contradiction to Scripture. I'm just suggesting that in certain respects, we haven't read particular parts of Scripture as well as we might, and we've got ourselves stuck in places where collateral damage arises because of that. And it would be good to review the situation to see whether, after all, we ought to adjust in these areas. So, from my point of view, it's a rather modest proposal, to be perfectly honest about it. Um, and, and I present it to you as a proposal, and of course, as I say to my students, you absolutely shouldn't believe it just because I say it. That would be no improvement on any other kind of authority-driven kind of enterprise. The, the, the rightness of what I have to say has to be judged by going back and looking and thinking and pondering and discussing and saying, you know, what would be lost by the change? And even if there are certain things lost, what would be gained perhaps? And in the end, in a sense, that doesn't matter. The question is, is it true and right? Right? So from that point of view, I'm quite relaxed about it. And it's not just because I get back on a plane next week and fly away and don't have to deal with the pack bearing down. The reason I'm relaxed is because 
we ought to be accountable to Scripture, and we ought to be forming reasoned, careful judgments on what is true and right, and what the best ways of articulating the biblical story and the gospel in our time. I am absolutely committed to that. Um, and therefore, in that sense, my conscience is free, even if it turns out, in the end, that some of what I've said is mistaken. Now, I wouldn't be saying it in public unless I didn't believe it was mistaken. Uh, but nonetheless, of course, you have to process this and you have to think about it. And I just think it's a better way that accounts for more of the data and gives us into a better place in which it is then much more readily clear how we ought to live in line with biblical injunctions. So that's my answer to your question. Okay. Uh, I might add just a, a bit to that. Um, I also think that uh, the idea of transformation is important. I, I think all of my life I've taken Romans 12 really seriously. Uh, in other words, it's a bigger project. When Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, I've, I think I've always got that this is an infinite, uh, an, uh, I think what Edwards called the infinite enlargement. It's a project that can't stop. I'm being called to grasp God, and particularly God in Christ, and that this is going to, and as Paul said, to do that, I, I actually have to shake off the paradigms I've got in this world, which is a lifelong and rather rather wonderful task but the unlearning is as important as the learning to get into that you know, in other words there's a really powerful theory in innovation that we have to fragment and disorder before we order and, and that's how people grow that's how people grow in in all cases and uh, certainly you haven't mentioned uh, some of the verses that I know as a young Christian when I was reading them I knew they I didn't understand them because they didn't fit in the simplistic uh, kind of sin-based gospel. But stuff like Colossians, when Paul says that the whole universe was created in Christ as an example, you know, you just begin to see he had this vast picture we've got to grow up into. And um, It's a bit like <coughs> serious scientific endeavor in general. You begin with a paradigm and you explore all the facts and interpret them in the light of the paradigm, and you may find, as you go along, the paradigm's not big enough. And then you have to adjust the paradigm. It's not wanton recklessness to do so. It's just what we would normally call common sense if applied to other parts of the world, right? And, and we live in this tension between the paradigm and, and the reading in this case, um, it's not very different from reading other, God's other book, reading creation. We read, we have paradigms. Over the course of time, certain paradigms have not proved to be sufficiently large or accurate. And by and large, we abandon them and we develop new ones. And I think scripture reading is like that. And I'm sure many of you, I have had the same experience as Tony, that you're given a paradigm to begin with and you have no reason to question it. And then you begin to read your Bible, and, and certain things just don't quite fit. And our first instinct is to read past them onto the next verse, because we're more comfortable there and just forget about it. But eventually we begin to develop a conscience a bit about that, perhaps, or for some other reason we begin to think, well, maybe that's not the best way of doing it. So 
I wonder if I took that seriously, what would happen over here? And um, this is certainly the shape of my life, and it's now my professional life and not just my personal life, and it's been a, a journey of trying to move towards better paradigms in continuity with previous ones um, that are still faithful to the whole notion of the orthodox Christian faith. But in all honesty, you know, quite a number of the things that many of us hold dear are fairly recent innovations in Christian history, to be frank. So, for example, it might surprise you to know this, but my view of creation as already being on a journey and unfolding towards an end is essentially what the church father Irenaeus believed way back around about 180 AD, one of the earliest church fathers who was very bothered by the Gnostics, who were essentially wild-eyed Platonists, who just took things way further, and who believed that all matter was evil, and, and so they were it was Plato squared, right? And he was combating the Gnostics. And in order to do that, he had to present, for the first time ever, a worked-through view of the whole Bible as a coherent story in which the great themes of Christian faith over against Gnosticism were illuminated. And um, the kind of perspective I'm presenting to you basically on creation is... Irenaean. It's not novel, it's actually deeply rooted. Whereas some of the other things that oftentimes are part of our local confessional paradigms are of much later vintage, Christian-wise. And um, some of them are good. I would suggest some of them are not quite so helpful, actually. And as we bring them all back to Scripture, which is what we should be doing, Sometimes we discover that wasn't the best way after all of saying that. We should say it this way. So. Uh, first of all, thank you, Ian. That was uh, wonderful, inspirational, insightful. Uh, quick question. How do we understand, reconcile ourselves with, and eventually communicate to the world, to people who the Bible's a foreign book, you know? Mm -hmm. That side to God that appears to be dark, to mm. some minds evil, mm. uh, with respect to uh, aspects of his uh, behavior or injunctions that you see in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, and we keep in mind that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. For instance, yeah. the order to the people of Israel to kill women and children and destroy yeah. property. And yeah. I've grappled with that all my life. Even the idea of eternal separation based on yeah. finite actions, that is, a human life. Yeah. Um, it's, to me, it's agonizing. I still can't comprehend particularly the former. So what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I'd be really happy to get into those specific questions. But I want, first of all, to step back from that and to say, I think the way you put the question was exactly right. That is to say, we know the big story and certain parts of it are really puzzling to us. And that's the nature of the question, right? Irenaeus was very good on this, by the way. His big problem with the Gnostics was, he said, what the Gnostics do, and he didn't use the jigsaw analogy, but I'm going to. He says, the Gnostics treat the biblical story like a jigsaw puzzle, 
that you can take apart at will and put back together any way you want, and thereby they make a portrait of a fox. But he said, the right way to put the jigsaw together is to make sure you always come back to the portrait of the king. And the point he was making with that analogy was that our understanding of the parts are always, is always connected to our understanding of the whole thing. So knowing that Scripture says that God in his character does not change, when we come across passages and chapters that appear to be in conflict with that, we wrestle with those in that context and we look for coherent answers. Um, it is all but impossible in this climate that we live in in the post-Christian West to initiate a conversation about the gospel on the basis of those passages which Richard Dawkins has now given into everyone's hands as little weapons to throw at Christians because Dawkins is the archetypal proof texter. He simply plucks texts out and lines them up in a line and says, there you go then, religion is bad. Right? Good biologist, I believe. Not a great reader of the Bible. Um, so it's futile engaging the world outside the church on that basis. We ourselves on the inside of the church still wrestle with these things, so how can we expect that to be the point of access or entry if the idea is we have to persuade every individual person on every intellectual issue that there's a tremendous answer they ought to expect before they decide to follow Christ, well, we're not going to be very successful, I think, in our persuasion. Uh, I think the problem has to be addressed in a different way. I mean, why do I read the Bible at all, really? Interesting question. In particular, why do I read the Old Testament at all? Because I'm not Jewish, so it's like reading somebody else's mail, really. Right? So why would I do that? The answer is I only read it, really, because I'm already following Christ. And Christ, it appears, gave it to me to read, and I ought to do that as part of my discipleship. So engaging with these problems is an aspect of discipleship. To ask somebody else to do who's not a disciple is kind of futile and I think a bit foolish. And it seems to me that the points of entry to other people to the Christian story have to be very different points of entry. And nowadays, I actually don't think it's even so much about argument. It's about quality of life. It's about friendship. It's about engagement, uh, being authentic, being real, being consistent having a community of faith that other people look at like the early folks did and say, well, these folks are different in a good way. I know the media says otherwise, but I know these folks in my neighborhood and actually they're pretty cool people. Um, and then later we can have our ongoing discussion about what to do with difficult passages without letting them subvert the whole enterprise because in all honesty, these are isolated instances within a whole sweep, right? Um, on the particular point you mentioned, there's a lot to be said about that, but I think one of the problems with the conquest narratives in Joshua and so on is that, uh, and, and this is not something people should know, they would have to be told this, um, 
a lot of the problem is not reading the genre of those stories correctly against their ancient background. Uh, because ancient conquest narratives, there's a way of writing an ancient conquest narrative, and it often involves exaggeration, hyperbole, and sweeping statements of that kind. But they're not meant to, in a pedantic way. And you may have noticed, even within Scripture itself, that Joshua, uh, Joshua chapter 10 says, Joshua wiped out everything that breathed. But suspiciously, just a few chapters later, there's all sorts of other folks still running around in the story. So there's already a clue there. There's something about that globalized language there that we haven't quite got a hold of yet. And then attention to the ancient leaders in context helps to explain what that something is. Um, so there are local problems that can be addressed in local ways. What we mustn't do is allow it to subvert the entire thing, and we mustn't make it the point of engagement with the outside world because we're doomed to failure, actually, if we accept that invitation. It just doesn't work in my experience. So that's the beginning of a conversation. You understand it's not the end of it, but that's my best first shot. So, okay. I... Uh... I often think just to your point about the broader narrative that even reading the Bible itself, uh, I think the idea that we've got of presenting apologetically that the proposition is the Bible is the word of God, take the lot, it was ne the Bible doesn't say that. It, it presents us with the single proposition that Christ rose from the dead. This is the utter turning point of everything. From that, all other things flow. It's, it's very important that we see our scripture reading as an aspect of our discipleship rather than the other way around. I mean, again, the way I, I can't say, it's hard to remember, of course, whether you were taught something or whether you picked it up, but I seem to remember that all the reasons given to me why I should read the Bible had to do with objective, rational reasons why we should regard it as the Word of God objectively and independently and self-evidently. And they never seem very good arguments at the time, and they seem even worse ones now. I think the real reason we read Scripture as Scripture is because we're already following Christ. Now, we may read the Gospel of Mark simply as historical literature, which is a very good thing to do and can be, can be done. Uh, there might be a reason for doing that, just to discover what an ancient writer had to say about first century Palestine and this interesting character, Jesus, and so on, and all of that. So you can certainly choose to read parts of Scripture, perhaps, for other reasons. But the reason I receive it as Scripture is because I am already a disciple, and I feel the imperative to do so. And it's interesting that as, although I blame the early church earlier on for their giving in to allegorizing, at least... The reason they were driven to allegorize was because, against the grain, they knew they had to accept the Old Testament as Scripture. They felt the tension. They knew it was a problem. But when Marcion said, let's ditch the Old Testament because life will be easier, the early church says, no, we can't do that because our Lord himself gave us these Scriptures for our use. So to their credit even though it was incomprehensible to them as Greeks, or at least very difficult, 
They did not make that Marcionite move. And the reason we don't, in spite of, in, with all the difficulties, I think the real reason we don't adopt that attitude is the same reason. Uh, I just think it's intrinsic to accepting the Lordship of Christ that we receive from his hand the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And then we talk. But it's from the posture of faith. It's not from some allegedly objective viewpoint, as it were. Right? So. I'd just like to ask a question that uh, I'm trying to draw a few threads from today together. Um, for example, you were talking about, uh, I think it was John chapter 9 and the, the yeah. healing of the blind man and was he blind because of his parents' sin or his own yeah. sin and so on. Um, my question is about uh, why God has created a world in which there are so many different religious alternatives. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm not looking so much for a theological answer to that, although partly I am, but sort of more of an existential answer in a way. Like just from, a, from your own perspective, from your own study of the scriptures, why, why would God have created a world that is potentially so confusing? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of, you know, you've been talking about the different worldviews that you've looked at, mm-hmm. uh, including the ancient Near East, and that, that sort of multiplicity of approaches and mm-hmm. wondering why it would be that God would have allowed a world to unfold yeah. in which so many alternatives yeah. exist? Well, it's a really important question. And I think the answer one level back is that God has chosen to create this kind of world and not some other kind of world. And intrinsic to this kind of world is moral freedom, but also freedom of thought and inquiry, which is an aspect of moral freedom, I think. And that involves the opportunity to be wise or to be foolish, to get things right or get them wrong, to make mistakes and learn from them, and all of those things, which actually, in practice, we recognize as the very building blocks of how we become more mature, wise people. So the early theologians wrestled with this because it was clear to them that many aspects of what might be called bad in the world seemed to be intrinsic to our ability to learn and progress and become less egocentric and so on and so forth. Suffering, of course, is part of that. Uh, Those of us in the room who have endured serious levels of suffering and still remain in the faith will typically testify to all the things they learn from that experience that they don't think they could have learned otherwise. So there's already some debate in the Christian tradition about this, and I'm just developing that really and and asking further questions about it. Um, So I I think it's got to do with this idea that creation is separate from God. It does have its own inbuilt freedoms. God allows it to be and to develop and does not micromanage. And God draws us into this conversation and says, come, let us reason together. Or Jesus tells a very puzzling story and waits to see who shows up afterwards to ask him questions about it. And you'll notice 
that even at the point when God becomes incarnate and is therefore, in principle, most available to people, there is immense mystery surrounding Jesus' identity. He doesn't make it easy for people to see who he is. He tells puzzling stories to see who's serious. And he requires hard intellectual endeavor. He says really hard things that discourage people and make them leave, which I think is designed, again, to sift out those who are serious. And so you don't get the impression that even in God's revelation, he's simply doing it in an overpowering way that doesn't allow choice. Those who have eyes to see, see. Those who have ears to hear, hear. Paul gets knocked off his donkey on the Damascus Road. What do the people round about him see? Not very much. So this idea that even in God's dealings with us for the good, where he's drawing us into relationship, that, that he's actually providing bags of freedom there to make mistakes, to misperceive, later to realize you've been wrong and move on. I think we must read that as part of the plan of creation where God has created the world that's not perfect in the sense of yet arrived at where it's going, but is perfectly designed to achieve God's purposes in this particular zone of reality. Um, Now, of course, as we saw in the Psalms, sometimes it's quite difficult to read our particular circumstances in that light. But it is what we are urged to do, that somehow, even in the moment when we doubt it, we must hold on to the idea that in the confusion, obscurity, and mistakes, God is at work anyway in drawing us onwards. So I see all of this aspect of it as part of the bigger why question. Why this kind of world? Why a world in which these things can happen, where the law of gravity is so good and yet it can cause pain? Why that kind of world? The ultimate answer is because this is the world that the good God designed to achieve his good purposes and to prepare us all for the next one. It's the basic answer, I think. Can I, uh, yeah. can I just pitch something in there? Because it's a great question. Um, so just to throw some ideas from another source. Uh, one of my great mentors um, in the world of design, a friend of mine called Richard Buchanan, uh, helped me a lot with knowledge in a way that was behind your question. <laughs> How could God allow so many false answers along the way he'd back off and say he told me well there's knowledge but more importantly there's the knower and there's knowing so what if God's primarily interested not in knowledge as a commodified propositionally bounded space but the the knowing and the knower and what if he wants us to become incredibly powerful knowers and knowing, well, the way that will, I'm, I'm like an athlete going to the Olympic Games. I'm going to have to work at it. I'm going to have to work at knowing, which will mean debate, choice, exploration, inquiry, uh, which will now build me into a wiser person. It's almost the muscles I'm building on the way 
uh, as opposed to God wanting me to pass an exam and get 100%. And uh, I found that very powerful, um, that, that God's... There's a second-order thing, which I don't know if... This came out of an essay that I read, and I, I've even forgot, so I couldn't say too much about it to you, but there's this idea that... It's between the uncreated God and the created and, and therefore the modus operandi of being a creature versus the modus operandi of being God. They will never be the same. So the basic idea is that it appears God can declare something out of nothing, but we will never be able to do that. We will have to work at it all, including into eternity. So the, the hard work of life, be it physical, intellectual, is actually will always be our modus operandi. And to be Trinitarian agents, his interest is in developing us along that pathway. That's a, another way of looking at it. Just one footnote here that ties back to other things we've been uh, talking about. And that is that this is democratic knowing. So it's interesting just to think about the big package idea that we've been talking about. In um, religions like Hindus and Buddhism, the knowing is elitist. It's the knowing of the guru, the philosopher, and so on. And it's really only for the elite classes. In Plato, utterly elite. And indeed, only those elite get to run society. So as you know, Plato's Republic is a totalitarian state. It's run by those who are higher up the agenda. Consistent with everything else we've been saying this weekend, the fact that everyone's an image bearer and everyone's an equal territory and that you can trust your senses and everyone has mostly all of them, right? Enough of them, typically. All of that conspires to make this a level playing field, as it were. Uh, and in fact, it turns out that the less elite in the Gospels are more likely to get it because they have less baggage to begin with. So it's actually turning the whole thing upside down. It's those who see and touch and hear and take it all seriously and respond in the right way who become the disciples. The people you might expect to get it don't. And that's a huge biblical theme all the way through, actually. So it's very important to grasp this, that, that knowledge, growth in accurate knowledge is part of the journey in Jerusalem but it is everyone who is urged to find wisdom and, and so on in the book of Proverbs. It's not just the kings, the philosophers, and the gurus, as it were. Just to follow that up with um, Socrates' famous dictum, the unexamined life is not worth living. Yes. Well, I mean, what Socrates meant by that nest of sayings is very interesting, you know. Um, I mean, as Plato reports him, he was a terrible elitist as well, right? Uh, and at one level, the unexamined life is not worth living. I mean, you can, you can see the point he's, he's getting at, and yet... What he's really on about is the kind of philosophical contemplation he himself is very good at. So it's also a self-serving kind of thing. And of course, not everyone, not even most people would be capable of that. So if that's the bar, if that's what he meant by that, it is actually profoundly elitist. And it's not the way the Bible would put things. 
because wisdom is either so unsearchable that no one can find it in Proverbs, or it's right there in front of your face and you can get it by observing how the ant lives. It's a, you know what I mean? It's, it's for everyone. It's to do with observation of God's world and listening to the wise elders, and these are things that everyone can do. So the entire Socratic Platonic thing is terribly elitist, and it's one of the biggest jokes, I think, when people say that Athens was the cradle of democracy. It was no such thing, and it could not possibly have been given the worldview, and only those people think it was the cradle of democracy who were like the people who had power in Athens and were happy enough to call that democracy because it left them in charge of everything. So, uh, but I mean, it was not in the slightest degree democratic, Athens. And uh, as I said earlier today or last evening, if you want to know where real democracy comes from, it comes from this Jerusalem vision that all of us being made in God's image have a stake, have a say, need to be respected, need to participate. Everyone, and politically and socially, that means that everyone has their own vine and fig tree to sit under, which is an image of stakeholding, it's participation, right? Uh, You hold land, the king can't take it away, as Ahab discovers in the Naboth story. I mean, there's all sorts of ramifications of this. So elitist it is absolutely not. It's a story of ordinary folks told from the ground up. And as Tony said the other day, there's nothing like it in the ancient world. There probably was nothing like it in the ancient world. It's not just that we don't have it. It's a profoundly subversive story in those general respects as well. Because about a bunch of slaves who escape from imperial control and build their counterculture in the hills of a nowhere land in the back of beyond. I mean, that's what it is. And who claim that God is with them, which is absurd, but true. Um, So, uh, again, the whole package is absolutely anti-elitist in almost every way you can possibly think, actually. Um, And by the way... That's the kind of wisdom that Paul's attacking. He's not against intelligence or rationality. When he's talking about the kind of wisdom you should oppose, it's this kind of Gnostic Greek wisdom with its elite hierarchies and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what he's really against. Yeah. I don't know if you want... There's a gentleman here who... Oh, good. How are you? Welcome. Uh, I'm not sure if this will be a, a very easy question or a very hard one, but I'm, I'm hoping the answer will be a very short one. Um, <laughs> that... that my uh, life had a big change three years ago when I became a parent. And, and thinking about the comment you made earlier about waking up in the morning and, and feeling that, you know, if I get out of bed, I might contribute to the evil in the world. Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, that huge life-changing moment for me is now I come to these things and I go, what on earth am I going to go home and tell my daughter? You know, because I'm mm. talking about um, Plato and Aristotle is probably a little ahead of her three-year-old brain at the moment. And so I'm wondering... Um, if there was a, a sense that my daughter should be waking up with in 10 years' time when she's going through high school and mm. all the hell that comes with that experience in life, what's that sense that ideally should, she should be feeling when she wakes up out, out in bed in the morning? I'm hoping that it's one of hope. Yeah. Um, but but what, uh, if you could put some word or, words around that, it, I guess I'm asking you to summarise your whole thing in a very short paragraph. For children. Yes. <laughs> I don't think that's difficult. 
There is a God, one God, one true God, who is good, who is for us, who has given us a wonderful world to live in, which unfortunately is marked by terrible evil and suffering, and that our job in this world is to relate rightly in friendship to that God, to care for our neighbors, to look after the planet, and to hope for the better world to come, which is part of God's design, um, and was so from the beginning. And it's in that story, your daughter is an image bearer of God, which is the most colossally high status you could give anyone in this world. And she should think of herself that way, and live that way, and know the blessing of God in that way, even in what might well be very challenging circumstances from time to time. I mean, that, that's, to me, that's the gospel, that's the biblical story. Uh, with everything in its right place. I, I mean, I hope that helps. <laughs> It is, and, and so, although this is more about probably your decisions than about your daughter's decisions, this implies a robust community of people around you who definitely believe the same things and who are going in the same direction, people to whom your daughter can complain about you when she's older, and you trust them to handle that well, uh, um, a community, which is what church is, ideally, and has to be because we can't do it by ourselves, because we are creatures of the group, we are susceptible to peer pressure, and we need to consciously create structure, structures where the peer pressure is going in the right direction, so that in our interactions with the rest of the world, we can re-enter that zone, re-find our place, settle back in, and, you know, frankly, a lot of life of a parent nowadays is deprogramming children for the first 60 minutes after they come back through the door and retelling the story and reminding them of who they are. That's how we discovered it to be. Um, not that there's not an awful lot of good things to be learned at school, but, of course, along the way, the children are picking up all sorts of very perverse and wrong ideas. And so that's part of it. And that's why I am not at all sympathetic, really, to the I don't need church kind of sentiment that we all too often get nowadays. Um, every one of us is well aware of the deficiencies of church, but if we ever find a better one, we shouldn't join it because we'll ruin it. And so the question is not, is it ideally what I would like? The question is, is it doing enough good in my life and my children's lives to be helpful in this great walk that we're walking? Is it doing a sufficiently good job of that? Not an ideal job, a sufficiently good job. If it's not, well, that, that's a problem that has to be thought about. I, I'm not one of those who believes you should simply stick with the thing that's not working because the, the, the stakes are too high, particularly for your children. The stakes are just too high. So we made it our business to make sure we had a larger friendship group, larger church environment, that we constantly had really cool people through our home to dinner, that our children couldn't write off very easily, even when they thought we were crappy. Um, 
And it worked out okay, I have to say. I'm happy to say, very blessed to say, it worked out okay. No guarantees on that. I mean, there's no guarantee that perfect parenting will produce perfect children. I wish it were that easy, but it's not. Uh, But nonetheless, I think you're asking big picture, really good big picture questions, and I think that that's the kind of thing that you can tell your daughter, and that's the kind of world you need to help to create for your daughter, in my opinion. Uh, just, um, well, we might uh, finish there. I'd like to finish with uh, just a couple of reflections. Mm. Um, first, in answer to your question, Dylan, one of the things that I've I found most important in life is the power of language to create realities. Um, and the more modern theory of language is that language constructs realities. And uh, one of the, I think, very insightful philosophers there was uh, J.L. Austin and Maturano, and they tried to create a grammar of, of the way various language acts, that's an important word, a language act um, works. And they created the grammar of language acts, one of which I've carried with me everywhere. They say it is the, the key language act of the leader is declaration of a space. For instance, a leader might declare breakdown is okay or or whatever. And I've often thought that if we have within us the inner resources of this kind of picture of the world and faith in it, uh, then out of that we can almost declare blessings. Um, I even do that in performance reviews. I even do that when I'm working with my staff. I feel it's my job as an older person to declare act and a blessing on people. You're really good at this, you know, and and I think there's so much of this resource as parents to create that optimism about the world, which I find quite practical. Um, And I've also been thinking a lot, uh, and in Gospel Conversations, we're going to move on in the latter half of the year to faith, the faith at work movement. Mm. Um, I'm very... I think it's going in great directions, but only baby steps, actually. And the problem is that if you go out into the work environment with the narrow gospel you've talked about, I think you screw everything up. Um, you just make, you make that opening up a distribution mechanism for a bad message. But when you have to in, interact with an environment that's apparently hostile, you actually have to have deeper fundamentals to relate to um, than other people might have to have. And um, one of the things our organisation, Second Road, is very involved in is what we call the democratisation of strategy, Mm -hmm. um, which is the empowerment of frontline workers, the fundamental belief that most organisations and most systems in organisations are actually platonic and crush them. And that uh, we, however, treat them like the image of God. And sometimes we get clients who believe that. So the managing director of Argyle Diamonds, which is a magnificent organisation, I don't think, I don't know if he's a believer, I'm not sure, but he believed in what he called the upside-down organisation. And we worked to create systems that gave frontline workers discretion, authority, room to play that were, could make a big impact on the company. And it was really... He fundamentally believed those frontline people had wisdom uh, 
that he, he and his managers and engineers would never have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, famously we created a system that, I mean, in a diamond mine, the, the biggest technical threshold is yield. How many diamonds do you get out of the stuff? And the engineers were convinced that the upper threshold, the theoretical threshold had been reached, which was 93%. And a group of frontline workers without tertiary degrees said to themselves, that's crap. These guys, management doesn't know what they're doing. But the system gave them power to then form their own team. And they famously lifted yield by 4%, which you know, was $300 million to the bottom line uh, per annum. Just a great story. Now, you know, as people don't know what was driving a lot of my belief in that, mm. which is this whole world that everyone's in the image of God and um, this hierarchical suppression is actually not a good thing and never was. But unfortunately, too often, Christianity is associated with hierarchy in the minds of too many people. Yeah, and sometimes with justification and sometimes not. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? So. Okay, thanks everybody. Uh, perhaps Gordon, we might you might just ask that privately because I think uh, we've we should give everyone room to uh, permission to go, and we'll see a lot of you next Friday night. Thank you very much.